Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've done since the last time we did one of these. Uh, I'm David. I'm Tyler. Uh, I'm coming down with something. I'm coming up. Uh, that's good. Um, well, did you did you let someone know you're coming up so they could get the party started? <laughs> that's, that's what you do when you're coming up. If you come up and the party hasn't been started, you know, it's on you. Really. I do get really disappointed. Yeah, and but I, and you gotta I yell let people out, know. Let's get I'm this saying. party started. Yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, uh, I get when I say you better get this party started. It's really threatening when I say it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it's like um, my favorite uh, uh, Disney song from Aladdin when he says, "Don't you dare <laughs> don't close you your dare eyes! Close your fucking eyes!" <laughs> <laughs> it's like, "Don't close your eyes, but also don't look at me." <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so I'm coming down with something. Uh, part of that means my head feels weird, and I'm not mm. sure how I sound. Like I feel like I'm off because I feel like I'm 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 hearing. Are your ears plugged? My my right ear is. Plugged. I hate that. So my voice sounds weird to me. Uh, it and sounds. I don't know. I'll say this it sounds fine. Okay, but I'm not quite at the part of the sickness where I've got that sexy voice. Yeah. Okay. That's tough. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you: Is my voice sexy right now? Uh. Or mean, sexier than usual. There we go. Okay, I mean. uh, no. <laughs> okay. It is Just normal baseline sexy. sexy. Okay. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. Um, and uh, I think we're going to start with something I, I think we've both seen, because uh, I don't think you had talked about it two weeks ago. So I think this is going to be, come up, uh, J.A. Bayona's A Monster Calls. Indeed, yes. This is on your list. Um Here's what happened with this movie. I saw it. I was like, this movie's really good. Mm -hmm. Then I started writing my review and I was like, I think this movie's great. Yeah. Uh, in, in writing about it. Um, and I'm surprised that it, uh, I guess I'm not that surprised, but it's, uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I know it's arbitrary to group things into years or whatever, but I do think this has been a good year. Um, I think so. Especially too. at the end of the year. Um, cause there was a time in the middle of the year when we were, cause I like, I went to Sundance for the first time. I saw a bunch of awesome movies. I was like, wow, what an exciting start to 2016. And there was a real lull in the middle because we didn't go to can or anything like that yeah. and see those. So we're, you know, at the mercy of the system where, um, the more prestigious stuff gets released <laughs> near the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but even like when, when I remember when the fall movie, we did our fall, fall movie preview, we were like, ah, I'm not yeah. sure. Um, but now I think it's kind of the point where there's so much good stuff at, uh, right at the end of this this year that um, that a really solid above average movie like A Monster Calls is kind of getting lost. Yeah, and I would actually say it's even more than above average. Um, yeah, I would too. Just I think it's fantastic uh, on a number of levels. Um, not the least of which is that. So the film is, is visually gorgeous. I've, I've read reviews that, that say that there's a gothic quality to it, which I could see. Um, I think the visual effects are great. I think the animation is great. I think um, performances all around are marvelous. What's that kid? Uh, something Liam, Mc Liam McDougal, is that it? I think it's Lewis. I mean, it's Lewis McDougal. And it's Liam Neeson, that's right. Liam Neeson. Right. It's, is it Lewis? I, I think, think that's right. Anyway, that sounds right. But I think he does I could it, look it up, uh, but I'm not going to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the holidays, you know? Um, I think he does a wonderful job. I think Liam Neeson finds some new notes to play because he has the type of voice that can be very comforting. You know, he did the voice of Aslan and stuff, so he can be authoritative while comforting. But this character is supposed to be 
intimidating and occasionally scary. And I think he does that really well. I think, I mean, uh, it's interesting. The movie, the movie's rated PG 13, which I don't really think it needs to be. Is it PG 13? Uh, yeah, I know because I looked it up when I was writing my review. Interesting. Cause it should be a PG because that's the audience who should see it. I think so. But on the other hand, I have to admit it is pretty intense. And like the, the monster's first appearance is pretty much an all out horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I, I was scared sitting in a theater in Santa Monica. Uh, I can't only, I can only imagine uh, an 11 year old. Yeah. It's, and but that's I who should it see getting, it. I thought it was getting, uh, getting a wider release than it is. I know it's going to get a, a, a full on release oh, in good. January, but okay. I thought it was already in a number of places. Um, Oh, good. We're ahead of the curve. We're telling people to get out there and see it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely, definitely worth seeing. It's, I mean, it's, uh, in some ways, most movies that are about, like, terminal illness are more about the people coping than the person who's actually ill, but not in the way that this is. Right. This is a movie where the person who's actually dying is almost completely sidelined, and that's not laziness you know, or that's not avoidant avoidance. That's, uh, uh, a, a, a conscious, conscious choice, conscious choice to tell the story of specifically what it is like to lose someone slowly over time. And to have, and as a kid, everybody trying to shield you from that constantly, you know, right. even though you know what's going on, but everyone is trying to push you out of the room or, or you, you can't be there for the difficult conversations and stuff like that. So the film sort of takes its cues from that. So you just see these little flashes of what his mother is going for, uh, going through. But um, what astonished me uh, on a thematic level is that... Um, I read a review that was negative of it. I don't remember who... It might have been Variety or something like that. And the guy was so dismissive of this film. In it, it might not have been Variety. I don't remember who it was. But anyway, he was so dismissive of the Fucking film. Justin Chang. I, it wasn't him, actually. <laughs> I, like, I know that for sure, but because I, I hadn't heard of the guy before. But, um, but he, he had said, like, he said, yeah, you know, there's some good stuff in there. But uh, he goes, and, you know, it's the latest movie that shows us that, that you know it's okay to grieve and whatever and i thought is that what you got out of this movie <laughs> there's so much more than that in this that, and that i i genuinely thought this was going to be a okay the kid learns to grieve it's not that a kid learns to be honest with himself and yeah. honestly it's something that that affected me as a person that people can have contradicting traits or feelings about something and they can both be true and somebody might instinctively feel worse about one than the other, but like one of them might ha- might be a deeper truth, but you can't get to that until you acknowledge this other truth, which you do not want to admit. You know, mm-hmm. we all have things in our lives that are, po- that are either positive and we might feel negatively about them sometimes or negative and we feel positively about them sometimes. And we feel like, no, we cannot, we cannot feel that way. We will not let ourselves feel that way. And most movies help that along. Most movies like to simplify things and make things only about one aspect of them. And this film really encourages you to embrace both. And I thought that was so great for kids. And I think it's great for adults. I think it's great for any movie going audience. Cause this is not the type of moral 
and intellectual complexity that I'm used to seeing in any movie. And I was like, that's more so than anything grief related. That, that is what really struck me. And it, it, it helped me honestly. (laughs) Yeah. I also think, I mean that there's something about, uh, you and I being, um, well, you know, not only people who have lost parents, but also people who love movies and the idea of, I, I kind of saw, um, you know, the kids fantasies as being, uh, sort of, um, uh, a, a metaphor for using something that seems like escapism, but as a way to actually face the truth head on. Yes. And that's kind of, because as I've said before, um, I process most of the world and my emotions through movies. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that really spoke to me. Uh, we should move on. Yes. The next one, I can't, I don't think you've seen this one yet, but tell me, I could be wrong. Um, Jeff Nichols loving. I have not seen it yet. Uh, this is a movie. I'm a fan of Jeff Nichols. Uh, this is a movie that I think I appreciate intellectually more than emotionally. It's, it's a, it's, that's a common thing I've been hearing. uh, Yeah. For a movie called loving that is about this very emotional thing. And I even, you know, I, I, I say that I did tear up at the end because it's a, it's a big important thing. And also more on that later, but I'm very prone to crying in movies since the election. Um, (laughs) And we will talk about that a lot later. Um, oh boy. There is a movie on this list today. We'll get to near the or maybe the halfway through. I haven't cried this hard in a movie theater since Bridge Terabithia. <laughs> um, and, and that was... Uh, Monster Calls, by the way, did remind me of that movie quite a bit. Yeah, I guess you're right. Um, sorry, uh, But anyway, um, we'll get to that movie. This is Loving. Um, I like Jeff Nichols' approach, which is to... to in, in some ways drain everything that we would expect to see out of this based on a true story, like court case thing, um, out of the movie. Um, which means not only is he removing most of the court stuff, mm-hmm. most of that happens off screen. Um, uh, and even when it does happen, when, when, um, uh, the character, the lawyers from the ACLU, um, confront the Supreme court, we see the beginning of it, um, where it's, uh, I can't remember the one actor. The other one is Nick Kroll playing and I'm yeah. seeing him in a serious role, but he does a great job. Um, we see them start their speech or their like opening arguments. Um, but then the sound of the opening arguments continues over just going back to the loving family. Yeah. Um, but so I'm saying that not only does it drain that sort of procedural court stuff, it also drains most of the romance part out where it's sort of just about these characters surviving day to day. And the yeah. movie I think takes on the kind of worldview of the characters of just putting one foot in front of the other. And that's yeah. why I say I appreciate it. I kind of like that because I, I think it works for the story he's telling. Um, but it does mean at the end of the day, uh, uh, or at the end of the, you know, uh, hour and 40 minutes, however long the movie is, I'm like, well, that was, that was successful. You know, I, I'm not like moved by the end of it. Uh, I think it's, a, I think it's, I, I don't know. We talk about, or I talk about, uh, I've talked about this since before we even had this podcast, the idea that you, uh, you ought to approach a movie on the terms that it's, that it appears to be setting for itself. Yes. You know, you don't judge, you know, the success of loving against the success of Dr. Strange. Like they're yeah. doing two different things. They're aiming for two different things. It's not fair. Uh, to Dr. Strange loving. <laughs> uh, good one. Sorry. Um, um, so, um, uh, by that measure, I do feel like it's a, it's a very successful movie. I do feel like Jeff Nichols achieved what he set out to achieve, but, um, I do, uh, I don't want to, you know, be, um, you know, Billy Zane and Titanic, but I feel like people won't be talking about this movie in 10 years. 
Yeah, I mean, it's everything I've heard about it, people have said, for a while, people were saying, this movie is essential this year. Just yeah, in I mean, the landscape of film. I know you love talking about this. Going into the Oscar draft, I was like, yeah. I got to get as much loving as I can. And, and <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And apparently a lot of other people felt the same way because I yeah. only ended up with Joel Edgerton. I think I had, it have... for, I had it for director for my uh, flex and I had it for picture, which I just dropped yeah, in favor yeah. of Hacksaw Ridge of all yeah, things. Yeah. Um, so definitely, yeah, it definitely seems like this is one of the big ones. Yeah. And now it really seems to be focused almost exclusively on Joel Edgerton and Ruth Nega, mm-hmm. um, which I guess makes sense. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's something that, um, I like the idea of approaching something from a non sentimental standpoint, but when, which I, in fact, I love that choice, mm-hmm. But it does. But when you're telling a sentimental story in a non-sentimental way, it does sort of guarantee that that is not a film that's going to stick with you emotionally. Um, that and when I just like I didn't know until I did some research that Loving is the is this guy's last name. Yeah, <laughs> it's both of their last names. Right, uh, right. And so I, I, when I found that out, I thought like some executive somewhere like must have thought he struck gold when he said, Hey, uh, you know, given the current racial tensions and stuff like that, we, we feel like this is the story to tell, you know, about this loving couple It's like, what's their last name? Loving. Are you shitting me? <laughs> Green light right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, go yeah. on. No, I don't have anything more to say. I think you're up next. Okay. Although um, I took your, was you, it monster calls? Yeah. Then so let's, maybe I should go we, back. We can move on. Yeah. Okay. No, I'll, I'll do the next couple. This one won't take long. Uh, this is a movie I've been meaning to see for a while. Um, I can't remember if you saw it. It's from a couple of years ago. I just happened to rent it on Amazon. Um, I'm a big Kevin Klein fan. Uh, it's called the last of Robin hood. I've not. Um, and it's from Richard Glatzer and Wash, Wash Westmoreland who made still Alice. I mm-hmm. think, uh, was that last year or was that two years ago? I think two years ago. Okay. So this one must have been like three years ago then. Anyway. Um, and it's kind of, this is based on a true story about the, um, the, the last couple of years of Errol Moore, uh, Errol Morris, Errol Flynn's, uh, life when he had a, um, a relationship with a much, much younger woman. Um, like, I mean, like a legally younger, uh, woman. that's not the Errol Morris. I know. Uh, uh, sorry. Okay. Errol Morris. Uh, see, there we go. <laughs> it's good. It's infectious. Boy, um, doesn't that speak to the, our level of nerdery? I'm sorry. Yeah. Go on. Uh, uh, and she's played by, um, Dakota Fanning here. Oh, okay. Um, which I really like. I don't think I've seen Dakota Fanning. I know she like is an adult who is in like roles as a grown up now. Mm-hmm. But I think the last thing I saw her in was like hide and seek with Robert <laughs> De Niro 11 years ago. Yeah. So it was weird. It was like, Oh, I guess she's an, an adult now. Um, and it's kind of, so it's based on a true story and it's kind of like still Alice. It's a movie that is, um, uh, aesthetically and stylistically pretty straightforward and kind of, it's all about the, performances Mm -hmm. and that worked in still Alice. But I think the, the period piece nature of this makes that makes everything look a little flat. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like if you're doing something contemporary, you can just sort of present it and maybe the audience by living in the same world can just fill in the rest of the work for you. Whereas here it seems like, well, if you're going to put it, you know, you're going to go to the length of like filling the screen with period cars and putting people in these costumes and like also playing, you know, real real life characters um it feels a little weird uh and it feels a little amateurish that said the three leads 
I mentioned Dakota Fanning and Kevin Klein, and the person who's the real, honestly, the real lead of the movie is Susan Sarandon as Dakota Fanning's character's mother. Hmm. Um, are fantastic and they do they do great work and it really is more it's less about Errol Flynn and it's even less about um, his uh, very young paramour and more about her mother who was someone who um, was so infatuated with fame and the spotlight that she um, was willing to wow compromise her daughter essentially that sounds really interesting uh, i mean yeah and, and susan Sarandon does a great job i just wish it were uh, a more fully realized movie i believe hasn't kevin klein played errol flynn before i don't know did he play him in chaplin oh maybe it was one of those types of things whereas it was a it was a it, I haven't character was definitely so so long definitely secondary but uh, um, i don't remember exactly but here's what's weird is that um errol flynn died when he was 49 or 50 mm-hmm. kevin klein is in his mid-60s yeah it's it's weird to have i mean i love kevin klein but it is kind of weird to like you're making the age difference even worse at that point <laughs> yeah um he's 15 years older than uh, more than 15 years older than errol flynn actually was but then again errol flynn lived hard so maybe he looked like he was in his mid-60s i, I could time see that yeah um Anyway, uh, then moving on, uh, I watched a movie on Netflix. This is a movie I've been meaning to watch all year. I'd heard great things about it uh, in terms of it being one of the best uh, animated films of uh, recent years uh, called The Little Prince. Oh, I've heard good things. It's great. It's it's fantastic. Um, I don't... This is one of those things, one of those movies that's... It's based on a book that reading reviews, apparently a lot of people grew up with this book. I'd, I'd never heard of it before, and so I didn't know the story no. uh, at all. And I still don't know how much of the story is from the book and how much is made up for the movie because it's, it's two stories. There's a modern-day story where there's a, uh, a girl who is... Um, everything about her life is very controlled by her strict mother, um, but then she uh, lives next door to this... Um, old like goofball voiced by jeff bridges who like tells their stories and they sort of become like weirdly friends uh but then the other part is the stories that he's telling Mm -hmm. you know and um i guess mild spoiler the two kind of blend by the end um but uh what's interesting is that the the modern day stuff is uh you know computer animation 3d type computer Mm -hmm. animation um and the stuff within the stories that jeff bridges character is telling is all stop motion um and it's uh it's it's very cool it's very beautifully uh done it has a great sense of motion and and grace and the things that you want from an animated movie mm-hmm. uh and i would definitely recommend checking it out yeah i'll definitely prioritize it. it 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 as tends to happen with like new stuff on netflix i'm interested and then after a week it gets brushed aside for the latest thing that comes out on netflix right. all um, right uh you're up okay I saw Denis Villeneuve's Arrival. Oh, good. That's on my list, too. So that's one of okay. them we can, we can knock out. Uh, did not really expect to like it that much. Thought it looked interesting. but uh, And it certainly didn't seem like an essential. Unlike Loving, uh-huh. Arrival did not seem like an essential movie this at, year. At least not a few months ago. Right. Now it, now it absolutely is. And, uh, and I see why. I thought it was... Remarkable! I it's, thought it was really great. It's the first Denis Villeneuve movie I like. I, I've, I think I said back when we did our fall movie preview when I talked about Arrival, like every year it seems like Denis Villeneuve has a movie or two mm-hmm. 
where I read about like the cast and the description and I'm like, yeah. that sounds cool. And then I see it and I'm left cold by it. It happened with, uh, with enemy and with prisoners yeah. and with Sicario. Uh, this is the first one that I liked. And I think it's because he, uh, it had a heart that was missing from all his other stuff. Yeah. And I think honestly, yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I think there's just, he has a very deliberate quality to him that I, I don't think it occurred to me, but absolutely lends itself to sci-fi. Um, and so much of this film could have been, you know, contact, which I don't care for, Uh but I think Amy Adams does some really marvelous work in, in a film that I really wasn't expecting to be a character study. Um, and then, uh, of course the music is, is very, uh, impactful and mm-hmm. the story is very impactful, but also, um, there's a couple things that I really wanted to mention. One is that deliberate pacing, the scene where they've, the very first scene that where they rise up into the spaceship yeah. and the shell, I think is the what they, shell, that's what they right. Call it. Yeah. And they are figuring out the, its own gravity. That scene goes on for a while. Yeah. And I remember I, in the, in the theater, I had this thought of like, this scene has been going on for a while. And I thought, yeah, but I'm still so fascinated. Yeah. This is all new for these people. And this is all very exciting. And I remember, I remember thinking like they're willing to spend, to, to take the time on a scene like this. Whereas I think another film or another filmmaker would want to just get past it and get to the possible aliens or whatever. Uh, I think that's no, I haven't read the short story. Um, story of my life that it's based on which apparently the movie was originally called story of my life and it tested uh very poorly i could see why (laughs) Um, or was it story of your life either way it was a thing that people found boring or misleading it doesn't sound like any name of an alien movie um i haven't read the short story but i uh, i know we we can't avoid awards talk at this time of year i'm not at all surprised that it's getting so much adapted screenplay um uh, attention because it's a perfectly structured screenplay and that's it can take that time because it knows exactly it seems like definitely you get the feeling that the the movie knows exactly where it is within itself at all times but not in the way that uh cuts the air off the way i feel like sicario did frankly um because it's uh, and part of that is i think amy adams is is terrific um she's right on the money and this is the first denis villeneuve movie that's um I mean, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say whether or not it's a love story. Cause I don't know if people, I am never quite sure what counts as a spoiler or, or not I know. because this is a movie. Okay. Slight tangent. And maybe this is a topic you should do someday. Cause I was thinking about this after the movie, I was thinking about the difference between a twist and a reveal, right? Cause I think okay. this movie has a, we've reveal. done something like twists before. At least okay. I think we have maybe, but I think this movie has a big reveal. And I think the difference is a, a, a plot twist calls into question that everything that came before right. it, a reveal maybe, you know, even further sharpens the focus yeah. of everything you've seen before. Yeah. So things fall into place. Yes, exactly. And I think this is a movie that has a reveal and I don't want to yeah. uh, spoil what that is. Um, but I think it's a, a very um, touching uh Again, I don't want to call it a romance because it's not. Uh, yeah. In fact, I mean, there is a couple, but uh, like the whole romance part of it takes place, you know, in the gaps. Like right. we don't actually see any like courtship or no. or anything like that. Um, yeah. So. The other thing that I see, I liked Sicario quite a bit. And then I liked Prisoners 
a fair amount. I don't think either one was necessarily perfect. And then I didn't really care for enemy very much. I thought it was a very ugly film. Um, other than that part with the snakes, I didn't like prisoners at all. I think um, for, uh, honestly, <laughs> I like the part with the snakes, as you know, well, oh, I and think the, uh, drive to the hospital. Um, that's a really nice moment. Uh, a uh, really good scene. Um, yeah, I think it's gorgeous. Uh, I think it's a visually beautiful film. And then I also think that, uh, the performances you, are solid. Didn't it kind of make you want to slit your wrists a little bit? Well, yes, of course. <laughs> but you know what? I'm always kind of on the brink of that anyway. <laughs> So it's I'm just like, like finally someone gets it and here's you know arrival is under two hours prisoners yeah. was two like almost two and a half hours long yeah and arrival feels like when you get to the end you feel like you've arrived someplace not no one yes. intended whereas prisoners is like you feel like you're being held prisoner it's, yeah, it's <laughs> punishing for two and a half yeah. hours and then like it's over and you're like what was that for why did i yeah why did i put myself through that well and certainly uh, some of the thematic stuff in prisoners is stuff that i like but at the same time it, there's such a it, it's 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 torn between like full-on pulp and something really significant, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whereas this, I think there's such a solid, consistent tone, uh, that lends itself to slight, mo- you know, short moments of, of comic relief heart. And then here's the other thing that I really, there's a lot of stuff I took away from this film, but what really struck me was how efficiently, I'll, I'll use this. This is a thing you and I talk about. Um, anytime we watch a movie about an artist, the art that they create better be good. Otherwise I'm not invested in this person anymore. Right. They do such a good job of explaining how complex linguistics can be. And when she is literally diagramming this sentence, like here's the basic question we want answered. Here's every step of the way yeah. we're going Love it. Yeah. First off, as you know, it pushes one of my pleasure buttons to see one, somebody good at their job yeah. <laughs> um, Definitely. and confident in their job. But it really, in explaining that you totally understand just how much work this is going to be to connect with another person. I really, they do such a wonderful job in that it's, it, it's sort of, it reminds me of when I read uh, devil in the white city. Did you ever read that? Yeah. Where, that book is written in such a way that the construction of the white city is to me just as interesting, if not more, more interesting, interesting than, the, than the murder stuff, than the murder stuff, yeah, because I, we've I seen agree. that before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I really, I was surprised how much I loved arrival. Uh, yeah, I thought it was very good as, as well. I wish there were more that I could say about it. You know, if we were, uh, if yeah. we were like slash film cast over here and we could talk about, yeah. uh, you know, um, the day is going to come when we do a more than one lesson episode about it and that'll be very freeing. Okay. Um, all right. So I've got a couple, Oh, this one. Oh, <laughs> and it's not getting good reviews. So okay. this is not a surprise, but I found myself getting more and more incensed about Peter Berg's Patriot's day. Oh, okay. Because I can't remember the last time I've seen a movie be so close yet so close to being very good. And yet so far Mm -hmm. because of one incredibly inexplicably boneheaded choice that I can't, I can't understand. So this thing, the, the it's, it's based on the Boston marathon bombings, which at this point are three years, not even four years old. Right. uh, right? It was April of 2013, right? That sounds right to me. Um, it was the day of, it was the day before my grandma's funeral. That's why I remember I was in St. Louis when it happened. Uh, anyway. Um, and I, I, I'm 
paraphrasing what I said in my in my review, which you can find at battleshippretension.com. Uh, but the the sort of standard bearer for this type of like recent national tragedy fictionalized movie, it's got to be United ninety three, right? Yeah, that's the movie I think that has done it the best. And two choices that United ninety three makes that Patriots Day bungles. One, United ninety three is almost entirely um, no name actors. Yeah. Like is maybe like. Greg Henry maybe like the biggest name in the I movie. I think so, yeah. Uh, and even like, to the average person, Greg Henry yeah. is not, uh, like, maybe they recognize him. Um, and then the other thing is that United 93 does not have a lead character. Yeah. It tells the story as it happened. <laughs> Patriot's Day has all of these characters, like, it, I mean, I, and I don't even mind that, like, you've got John Goodman playing, um, you know, the... Uh, He's not the he's not the Boston police chief. He's someone high in the Boston police and police. And you've got J.K. Simmons playing the chief of the um, Watertown, which is where they actually caught the mm-hmm. the, the 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 surviving uh, bomber. And you've got like real act, you know, actors showing up as real characters throughout. That doesn't even bother me so much as it is that. And Kevin Bacon is playing the FBI guy. They're all playing real characters who are all doing what their characters did mm. and then they make up i'm guessing it's like a composite of, but even then it still seems like there's extra stuff made up they make up mark Wahlberg's character so that he's there for all of it like in ways that don't make sense that he's okay you make up a guy who's there working the finish line the day of the of the bombing but then he's also the guy who happens to be the first on the scene after the carjacking victim escapes like who didn't even he didn't show up knowing this is a guy who was carjacked by the bombers yeah he happens to be the first guy there and then he's also the first responder in watertown which isn't even where he's a boston cop when that when the last bomber is, is hiding in the boat in the backyard like it's all this real stuff that happened and then they're laying this mark Wahlberg character on top on top of it and it's i mean if i wow I, I think I'm insulted by it. Like, I don't know if it's my place to be insulted by it because I'm not someone who is personally affected. You can be uh, insulted as a viewer, as a viewer and as an American, like, yeah. you know, this was an attack on America. Uh, I am, I am insulted by making, by inventing this bullshit action hero in what should have been a United 93. And the thing is all the, uh, most of the other parts of the movie are, they're not as verite style as Paul Greengrass's United 93, yeah. but um, they're well done and they work on their own just fine. Like, I mean, there's a way, we, you know, you talked about your uh, Frodo only cut. Yeah. There's a, I bet you could take Patriot's Day and cut out most of Mark Wahlberg. It would be 40 minutes shorter. Yeah. There's, a, there's probably a couple scenes where you'd have to have him in there, but even then make him not the main character. Yeah, just it hey, be a, a fun cameo <laughs> by Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Um, but, like, it's such a stupid, stupid, stupid choice. Like, I'm, I'm getting mad at, at it all over again. So let me... Okay, so let me put this out there, um, having not seen the film, but uh, hypothesizing uh, as to why they did this based on past movies that are similar. Zero Dark Thirty... Okay. And let's say 13 days. Now, 13 days, Kenny O'Donnell was a real guy. Mm-hmm. But based on everything you read, including like himself and 
people that were in the White House said, like, I didn't play this big of a part at all. And so they they elevated him to essentially a fly on the wall where he's always there. And he happened to be friends with both Kennedys. So yeah. that kind of allowed him to be these various places. But even as I was watching, I didn't necessarily feel insulted, but I remember being like, you know, shouldn't this be from this point of view of one of the Kennedys at least? Uh, <laughs> why am I interested in this guy? Uh, and then... Whereas uh, something like Zero Dark Thirty, I never felt uh, like they were overstepping with uh, uh, Jessica Chastain's character. So do you think they're trying to evoke something like that? I guess, but the difference is that this is an attack on American soil. And also, this is what I didn't get to, the point of the movie, at least nominally the lip service that it gets yeah gives is the is about boston strong the way that boston came together you know yeah that's what it talks okay, about yeah. that's you know and it and so it it it's it shoots itself in the foot it it, it works at cross purposes with itself yeah. by inventing this action hero character you know it's interesting uh are we going to be talking about Sully at some point today? Uh, we very much are. Okay. So don't put a pin in that because okay. I was already thinking that's Sully's movie that does this right. It does it exactly right. It's on my mind because this coming, uh, let's see, next week's More Than One Lesson is going to be about Sully with the companion film United 93. Ah. Um, because Sully is, is something where you do have a singular guy that everybody is calling a hero. And then he and the film itself is saying, hang on. Yeah. Everyone well, had a part yeah. to play. So it's the exact Let's put opposite. Pin, I, I, yeah, I wanted to give Sully it's, it's due it's when we get court. there. Um, all right. Then moving on, I saw Mike Mills, 20th century women. Oh, okay. Um, this is my first Mike Mills movie. Uh, uh, cause I didn't see Thumbsucker or beginners. I saw Thumbsucker. Um, and this movie is amazing. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I did not expect, uh, I did not expect this because I um, I had an idea of what kind of filmmaker he was, which is maybe like, you know, at the top of his class, but still kind of like a, you know, Sundancey type of, a little <laughs> you, precious. you know, precious. And yeah. there, that's what I got from Thumbsucker. Some certainly. of that. Um, but uh, this is just a, a terrifically moving um, m- movie. Uh, a, it, that's I, I want to say it's, you know, I want I want to say it's about something, but it's about so much. It's about so many different things. It's, it's more of an ensemble piece that I, that I, um, expected the, the, the lead theoretically is this, um, 15 year old boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a single mother played by Annette Benning, um, who, um, they live in Santa Barbara and they rent out rooms in their home to Billy Curtis character and Greta Gerwig's character. And then he also has a school chum played by, um, L fanning, the other fanning. Um, uh, and it's way more of an ensemble piece than I, than I thought, but it, it's, 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 it's very much an illustration of the kind of thing that you and I have talked about over and over again. Um, which is, um, specific experiences making themes more universal and more relatable. You right. Know? It's counterintuitive, but that's actually how it works. And so this is very specific to a, you know, central coast, California, late 1970s, uh, upbringing, but it's also about, um, uh, everyone or at least every sort of probably smarter than average, but not necessarily popular, um, uh, teenage kid. Yeah. But it's also just as much about Annette Benning's character. She's yeah. like, she's a, she's a second lead and Greta Gerwig gets plenty of her own time. And Elle Fanning gets, in fact, the movie has, um, 
various voiceovers. It's it's narrated by different characters at different times in kind of a Terrence Malick type way. Um, and it does, it does have this Terrence Malick type thing in that the voiceover um, is in the first person or in the present tense rather, you know? Yes. I am doing oh. this. She is doing this, but also the, the narrators, even though, you know, the characters within the time are happening at that time, their narrator versions are, uh, omniscient when it comes to time. They know, they know what's going to happen. Do you know what I mean? Yes. When the characters don't, so it's, it's an interesting. interesting, it's an interesting choice, um, that I think works very well. And also because it isn't leaned on, it's not a gimmick. It's it, there's a couple points where it goes specifically into it, where Annette Benning is telling you what's going to happen to her character in 20 years, you know, hmm. but it doesn't lean on that throughout. Yeah, I don't usually like that, but, uh, because it often feels too clever. Yeah, it, it, it's not. Um, yeah, I know you because you were bothered by that in uh, Eat to Mama Tambien. Yeah, that's the um, first place my mind went. Which I love that movie and I love that choice. Um, but this isn't that because it's not happening throughout. It's just a couple moments when it's important. Um, but it's also a movie that I would honestly show to. Uh, I would show it to high school kids or maybe even middle school kids no. uh, because. It, if only for the reason that like boys and girls should be more aware of what each other's experiences are, um, not just social experiences, but also physical experiences. I think we'd all be better off if we, uh, like Dave Foley on kids, the kids in the hall, if we all had a better attitude towards menstruation. (laughs) Uh, and there's a long conversation about menstruation. Um, in the movie, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. Great, great performance by Annette Benning, but that's no surprise because she's always great. Um, it's, it ultimately comes down to it's like, yeah, sorry, menstruation is just a thing that happens. And by the way, yeah, sorry, boners are so gross. <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, um, yeah. But the difference is, is that like, at least in the comedy sense, like girls are hearing about boners all the time, right? Uh, and it's weird that like menstruation is something that happens to half of the population and yet is like hush hush <laughs> like, yeah it's, which is weird to me because yeah. it's well that's a anyway. conversation for another time and everyone Topic, should, uh, you can get on youtube by the way and find that kids in the hall day foley okay. sketch uh which it's it's a sketch it's more just a monologue where he's i love those he's the guy who has a good attitude yeah. towards menstruation <laughs> do you remember <laughs> so much of those monologues i mean of course they're written well but and clearly they're written with a particular kid in mind uh-huh. and dave foley might have been the best at them now that I think about it, but just well, like Bruce McCullough also had yeah, the that's true. open letter to the guy who stole my bike for you, which is a classic. <laughs> uh, and I know that I'm saying an obvious one, but Dave Foley as the doctor who got by on charm, on charm and yeah. he said, and he's just sitting there in his scrubs covered in blood. Yeah. And he just says, I'm sure you're wondering how far could you get by on charm? Pretty far, actually. Do you remember the capper to that? When he's like, I have to go inform the family. This is the hardest part of this job. I, I guess. guess. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're up next uh episode topic by the way movies that we think uh kids and teenagers should see oh that's a good one um okay so let's see i watched a movie on mubi so you'll be hearing about it in a couple days as well uh uh, a film called the trip to bountiful starring geraldine page okay uh directed by peter masterson and written by horton foot who is becoming a writer that i love um, he wrote, he, he adapted, uh, to kill a mockingbird. He wrote tender mercies. Um, and this definitely feels of a piece with tender mercies. The trip to bountiful is, was it a play? It was a play that he wrote. And didn't they, and I can't remember what 
channel just a couple years ago did a version that I saw with Blair Underwood and Cicely Tyson yes. and Vanessa Williams, I think. Uh, that sounds right to me, yes. A, that, was, that was really good. Yeah, I looked I looked that up. Um, yeah, this one... Okay, I'm uh, figure out, was that Lifetime? Yeah, it was a Lifetime original. Geraldine Which, Page... Yeah, sorry, to put, okay, before you get sorry. started, because I do want to make a case, like... I hate that Lifetime movie is used as a like a shorthand derogatory thing, like yeah. to say when movie is sort of like bad and sappy and usually yeah. like female centric. It's like oh, it's yeah. like a Lifetime movie. Yeah. Lifetime makes some good shit. My preference in that instance is Hallmark Hall of Fame. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. From what I ended, I haven't watched the Hallmark movie in forever. Yeah. For understand, yeah, they are of lower lower quality. Yeah. But Lifetime is worth your respect. I want I want my movie to evoke a Hallmark card in its tone, <laughs> uh, you know, really subtle and nuanced. Um, yeah, so uh, Geraldine Page won Best Actress, uh, rightfully so, and it's just this uh, this older woman living with her son and his wife uh, in, I think, Houston or Dallas, I don't remember, in the 1940s, and she uh, is just, she doesn't get along with her daughter-in-law and she herself is kind of cantankerous and so she just decided but not cantankerous not in like a shitty movie way cantankerous in the way that you feel like you've met this person before um and she decides and she keeps wanting to get back to her hometown called bountiful and she hasn't been there in 20 years and so it's just her trying to get there and then her getting there and you can tell it's based on a play, but not in a, not in an overly stagey way because it, it, it reminds me also of the straight story because it's this older woman who encounters people along the way. It's the middle half of the, the, the middle part of it is uh, a road movie, I'd say. And the conversations that she has with people, you know, someone will get just like one scene, but it's such a meaningful mm-hmm. scene. It's written so beautifully. Uh, the director, um, I did not write down uh, the other stuff that he's directed, but uh, just really lets it breathe and just lets the characters exist. And, and in that way, it reminds me completely of Tender Mercies. Um, and it's it, it really is a marvelous film, and I was very happy that I saw it. I had heard good things about it when I saw it pop up, uh, pop up on movie. I thought, oh, I'll give this a try. So, um, yeah, seek it out. If, if you like those types of movies, um, give it a watch. Uh, the director, Peter Masterson, has not done much of note, okay. um, but he did make a movie a few years ago, well, I guess over 10 years ago now, called Lost Junction with Nev Campbell, which I saw. Oh, okay. Uh, it's not great, but um, I'm a big Nev Campbell fan. Always, I, always have been. What I have seen, I, I feel like I haven't seen that much. I mean, I saw, okay, let's see here. Scream. Mm-hmm. Got your drowning Mona. Yeah. Scream 2. Scream 2. Okay, I've seen all the screams. She's in all of those. She's uh, in all four. Panic. She's very good in Panic. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, I can't think of much else that I've seen uh, with her in did it. Did you see When Will I Be Loved? Which is a I did not. I heard good things about James that, Toback movie. If you like James Toback, um, which that is n- not necessarily true of everyone that everyone right. does, but I I, uh, I like I like the movie. I never saw Wild Things, which is a big. Nor one. did I. Um, I think we might be the only two. Uh, straight men of our age group that did not see wild things. Yeah. She was also, uh, and no one saw this cause it, the show ended up getting canceled, uh, halfway through its second season, but there was a show called welcome to Sweden on NBC. Okay. Um, Greg Poehler, Amy Poehler's brothers. Oh. Uh, it was based on his real life of marrying a Swedish woman and living in Sweden. Interesting. Anyway, Nev Campbell played a woman who was hired as a consultant by the Swedish bank. Like, that that the wife worked for and there was this very funny running joke 
where every time she would talk about, she'd be addressing all the employees and she'd talk about how boring Swedish people are and would always invent like this character named Sven. You want to like, Oh, you want to, you guys all want to be like boring old Sven, but there really was a Sven in the room. <laughs> so the boss kept having to turn to him and be like, she's talking again about a fictional Sven. <laughs> that sounds great. It's very, it was a very funny, the second season of that show was a real improvement over the first, but it was a little know. too late apparently because uh, it got I, canceled. I didn't know it was on for that long. Uh, that it was, was the back, first time hearing of it. Back when I used to watch TV shows. Um, um, all right. So we're moving on. Yes. I watched a movie. Now I can't believe we didn't talk about this last week, but uh, uh, I can't believe you didn't talk about this last week. Uh, Cause I had not seen it until recently, but it is a movie that is either a Christmas movie or a movie that has Christmas in it. Okay. I want to get your opinion. Uh, it's called the lion in winter. Is that a Christmas movie? Christmas is literally the reason for the season. The the whole impetus for why everyone is to get back together at the court, uh, Henry the second's court is because it's Christmas. Yeah. You'd think I would remember that having one best actor at state of Missouri year 2000 for <laughs> being in that play. It's fine. Uh, I mean, it's definitely the reason for being there. And it's, I mean, it's all about family and relationships and that sort of thing. So yeah, uh, not in a positive way, not in a positive way. Uh, Anyway, so my opinion of the movie, having not seen it, is I can't believe I haven't seen this before. In some ways, it's so oh, this up is your my, first time seeing yeah. it. Oh, okay. in some ways, it's so up my alley. Yeah. Um, because it's like, it's like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf in a castle? <laughs> that is exactly what it's like. It, yes, uh, it's just these people being awful to one another. But the stakes are even higher than who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. It's literally family members talking about potentially killing one another. Yeah, uh, but doing so in this uh, overly wordy and. Uh, contemporary for the time like they're not talking like it's 1183 they're talking like you know higher than average uh educated people in 1968 or whatever year uh the movie was it was 68 right the play was 66 and the movie 68 um it's a ton of fun that said it's not a great movie i don't think um i think it's over overly long i don't think it needs to be like two hours and ten minutes and i think um there is uh, a lot of overacting as well. And sometimes that's exactly what's called for. Yeah. And sometimes it does go a little, I think the the big moment at the end, the goodbye between Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Like the shouting at each other across the river. It just, it goes too big uh, at the end. But um, it's, I kind of know it's so much fun to watch the movie, yeah. even as it makes me feel bad about these characters because they're so awful to one another. Yeah. Here's okay. So here's what I'll say. I make my jokes about, uh, you know, being in that play and stuff. It was a remarkably fun play to be in, uh, to get to say that dialogue. Um, and to just, cause there's so much gamesmanship going on. Yes. There's genuine hurt sometimes, uh, regularly in fact, but there's also, this strategy element. Um, and it was a lot of fun to play all of those and, and get, you know, you don't expect when you're doing this non comedic play to get laughs, but there are laugh lines. Oh, in there, there are huge laughs. Um, yeah. I mean the one Catherine Hepburn gets the best line in the, in okay, the movie, which one? 
uh, well, it's when Anthony Hopkins is coming at Nigel Terry with a knife and he yeah. says, he has a knife and she says, of course he has a knife. He always has a knife. We all have knives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of it. So I knew that it was Anthony Hopkins, uh, film debut, mm-hmm. uh, and he's good in it. I did not know that it was Timothy Dalton's film debut, yeah. who was also fantastic. I would say maybe even better than Anthony Hopkins with less, less screen time yeah. playing, uh, the French King Philip II. Um, he's terrific. Yeah. Uh, and he gets to play, he gets two big scenes, one two hander with him and Anthony Hopkins and one with him and Peter O'Toole. Yeah. Um, we should move on, but, uh, um, I do want to point out that Peter O'Toole was 25 years younger than Catherine Hepburn. Yep. Um, which I looked up like Henry the second was like 10 to 15 years younger than Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah. So it's not entirely, but 25 years is crazy. And he was also only five years older than Anthony Hopkins, who was playing his, his oldest yeah. son or his oldest living son. The whole point is that the previous son, whose name I've forgotten had died. He does. I mean, he does age pretty well though. Like in that, I mean, just, yeah, he's the, an actor. The, the, I don't know. It's, it, it is sometimes amazing how much a beard, cause they don't like gray up his hair or anything. The character's only 50. Um, and so uh, he's got a decade on the Pope. But yeah, that's a thing I know. He <laughs> yeah. says, um, "Yeah, but fifty and eleven eighty three was probably well." That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the oldest man I know. Uh, I know. I remember more of these lines than I thought. Uh, but um, um, yeah, yeah, and and this is the second time uh, that Peter O'Toole plays Henry the Second. You and yeah. I saw Beckett. Um, yes. And when you see Beckett, and then you watch this, there are a couple of moments when he's talking about his friend Thomas. And yeah. it, it has real resonance. Yeah, there are a couple point. references early on um, when Eleanor implies that she might have slept with, <laughs> with yeah. Thomas Beckett uh, and then says, no, I didn't. Yeah. Um, okay, and then let's, here's, we teased it earlier, but on Christmas Day, I went to a DGA screening of Sully. Okay. And we teased it earlier with the Patriots Day thing, and yeah, I think you really got it on the mark that a lot of, I was like a lot of people, I was skeptical about the movie because mm-hmm. I was like, this was a thing that took three minutes yeah it went great and everyone agrees that it went great <laughs> yeah so where's the conflict in this movie and i think it does invent some conflict that i think wasn't really there with the with the yeah. hearing uh you know but mostly it does that as a way to do what you were saying before which is to illustrate it's not just that sully did everything right it's that everyone involved did i'm getting emotional to talk everyone co-pilot flight attendants the passengers themselves the ferry ferry boat captains and rescue workers and the firemen like everyone did their job so perfectly yeah um which is why sorry go on no go go ahead which is why i mean i love the scene at the hearing at the end where everybody's now heard the black box recording and all that and sully says can we step outside for a moment? And they go out and you think he's going to have a big emotional His breakdown. Captain Phillips moment. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, it's this other thing where he actually, for the first time feels emboldened, um, and feels like we did our jobs and, and literally everybody in the film can say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just such a, you know, and you see what I mean about like in, in the minds of the characters and in the tone of the film, like nine 11 looms, large in these characters minds and yeah yeah, i i like it more uh, the more i think about it um but i want to say what i wanted to get at before which i was not emotionally prepared for this movie i've talked about how i'm more prone to crying in movies Mm -hmm. since the election and this movie 
fucking wrecked me. Like there was a really? point at which it was just like, it was uncorked and then I just couldn't stop myself. It was so much, but not like sad, like Bridget Terabithia. Yeah. Like it was so optimistic and hopeful. And I think that's what I need right now is sure. to feel so hopeless yeah. uh, about, um, and I am so scared about nuclear weapons and, and things that are, you know, yeah. going to be a big part of our lives for the next four years. Uh, and hopefully just that, um, and ho- well, hopefully that long, uh, hopefully we aren't wiped off the face of the yeah. earth, um, by our, uh, Im- impetuous oh god it drives me crazy okay it just drives me crazy yeah. you know that oh god like god forbid <laughs> we could have had we could have had our first woman president i understand there are people who are against her in particular but to the sexists out there who say we don't want a woman president because no. women are irrational and governed by emotion, mm-hmm. you you voted for Donald Trump. You I, and admittedly, uh, I haven't heard anybody say that uh, about her or anybody else. Um, and yeah, you're right. Maybe I, maybe it is a straw man because I'm, I'm I am angry. Um, here's what I will say though, if you'll pardon me. And there's a thing that I've had to think: if it were Bernie Sanders versus Carly Fiorina. Would you then vote for the first woman president, or does it? <laughs> no, I, I, I would not. Right. Um, like, yeah. Uh, if that's the argument, then it's 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 not that you want a woman president. So you want the right woman president. You want the one that represents your views. So I would say the views are more important than than the person's gender. Yeah, they are to me. Yeah, I think there are. There might be some people out there that want to do that. I think there might be more people who stayed home because out of sexism than who voted for Donald Trump out of sexism. Maybe, maybe not more, but I think it's hard to say. I think, well, then that means that's, that's uh, your side. Then that's what I'm saying is okay. I think because this Donald Trump was not, uh, uh, elected with a huge Republican outpouring in, in terms of voter. Like what happened is not enough Democrats showed up at the polls. Yeah. Uh, and so I am more, uh, and I, they're not my side, but you know what I mean? Anyway, yeah. this, I didn't want to go down it's this path. Here, this is optimism. Gonna, hey, this is going to happen for the next four years. Get used to it. Yeah, well. um, uh, but I need, I like, I need optimism to see all these people doing their jobs so competently. Like you were talking about with arrival, just people who are good at their jobs and are doing them well and are there like everyone no one acted selfishly everyone helped one another and no one had any bullshit heroics yeah uh it was it's just it was such an inspiring movie uh this is one i kind of want to buy on blu-ray and revisit whenever i'm feeling down well and you know what there's let's 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 follow this a little bit so you're feeling down as a number of people are. Uh, I, well, um, I've, I've, you know, I was sad. Now I'm frustrated, scared. I think. Oh, okay. More often. I think because of the nuclear, since the last time we've yeah. spoken, Donald Trump tweeted, uh, the president elect tweeted, uh, about, uh, his, uh, believes that we need to expand our nuclear yeah. capabilities. Yeah. I t- reminded of the West wing line about like, uh, uh, we don't need enough. What was it? I can't remember how many times it was like, we don't need enough, um, nuclear weapons to obliterate the world so many times over. Right. Surely once is enough. Yes. Um, that's a good one. Uh, and it was a whole plot point because yeah. the character who said it, they knew like, well, he didn't write that. Anyway, it was, um, 
Ian McShane was the one who said it. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. That's right. I for, and he's the, a Russian character. He's right? a Russian character yeah. who's like a complete Aaron Sorkin invention. No one like this exists, but it's such a fun invention of someone who technically speaks perfect English, but learned it like a computer and yeah. has no understanding of idioms or yes. slang whatsoever. Yeah. Like I'm sure I don't think anyone exists like that, no. but, uh, it made for a lot of funny back and forth with him and Sam Seaborn. Oh, I just want to watch that episode now. <laughs> um, but, uh, what I'll say is that one thing, okay. So this, this is a personal philosophy of mine and, uh, it probably does come from a certain degree of I'm going to, I'm going to, anticipate other people saying this and I will beat you to the punch. It probably comes from a certain degree of privilege. Um, but in a situation like this, if you, unless you are in a position to make a huge difference, unless you are in a position to go and protest or, or petition your, your congressman or, or whatever, which we can all do obviously, but unless you're in a position to influence policy or influence lawmakers or something like that, then the most you can really do, aside from keep yourself aware of things, is live your life the best possible way you can and do what you have, you know, what I almost went into Christianese there, but uh, you've been put into a certain position either at your job or with your family and friends mm-hmm. or on this podcast. And so th- doing this to the best of your ability and being there for other people and trying to show them love as much as you possibly can, uh, and try to find what you do have in common as opposed to really emphasizing what you don't have in common. And so, and that's what, that's what Sully is mm-hmm. like all of these people, they are yeah. just doing their jobs. Yeah. They recognize that their jobs are very important, but none of them are, like you said, there's no bullshit heroics. There's no, we're going to go and do this. It's literally, this is my job and I'm just the better I do it, the better we're all going to better off. We're all going to be. Yeah. Um, and so even it even takes certain poet, uh, it takes the poetry out of certain lines like that one guy. And I love, I love the line where he says, you know, it's been a while since we've had news this good and oh, yeah. certainly involving an airplane. And I remember thinking like that's, and it, it's, it's so on the nose and yet it's on the nose in a way that I think people were probably thinking at the time. And yeah. it really, I don't know. And I feel like that's, that's the most we can do. I, I have to be the best possible student I can be and connect with people on campus that I don't agree with mm-hmm. so that we can like, I don't know, keep a line of communication open as opposed to just like cutting ourselves off. Uh, I saw this, uh, I saw this story, uh, which this, Oh, I forgot what publication he writes for, but he basically said that every year he and his wife have this, uh, post-holiday party with all of their friends and he decided to cancel it on the off chance that any of his friends voted for Trump and he doesn't want to deal with them anymore. It's like, I, that's an odd choice. But I kind of like, I kind of understand it, but I also think at some point the grace period has to be up. Do you sure. know what I mean? Like at some point you're going to have to say we're in the same country as these people. Cause otherwise you're just as bad as the, the, um, the, the, the people who want to write off New Yorkers and Californians essentially is yeah. not being real Americans, which by the way, Sully's a great movie about New Yorkers yeah. being great Americans. Although I mean, Sully himself, I don't think is a New Yorker. No. That's just where he happened to be. But you know, no. most of the people on the plane and certainly all of the, the, the rescue workers uh, are New Yorkers. I have a political story to tell you. Okay. Real quick. So Jen and I were in uh, Minnesota for the holiday and 
there was so the night of the 23rd there was a reunion for jen's like grade school classmates they do it every five years and that's fun it was a smaller community so all these people still know each other i don't know anybody that i knew in grade school i barely even know their names anymore yeah i seem to recall (laughs) there was a i think there was a mark in there somewhere (laughs) um anyway so uh so she invited me to go i wound up being the only spouse that showed up which was a bummer that's Um, weird and so I got to talk to people, including like an old flame of hers. So that was fun too. <laughs> an uh, old fifth grade flame. Well, they, it, it, it <laughs> spilled over into like middle school years and stuff like that. And uh, still, I think you're, <laughs> I think you're in the clear. I think so too, but, you've also, you've but I still want to, do I, I think so. He's a, I lo- mean, he's a lawyer. Uh, obvi- you know. obviously, you know, a woman's affections are not a competition to be one sure but if they were you won't. yeah I, I, no I, I totally nailed it um so but what but there was a teacher there that everybody there really loved um and he was a very nice guy and so jen and i were talking to him and uh it just occurs to me that that, old, that this old flame actually said he started listening to bp oh uh sorry man yeah you uh, lost sorry loser <laughs> Uh, that's fun. Anyway, so Jen and I are talking to this old teacher of hers and, uh, he was asking her about, about her business. And she said, you know, she's been traveling internationally. And he said something like, he goes, Oh yeah. He goes, I, cause he recently retired and he said, yeah, I plan on doing some international travel. He said, he goes, I might, I might want to, you know, I might want to move out of the country if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. And Jim's like, Oh yeah, absolutely. And he goes, he goes, I'm sorry. He looked at me and he goes, I'm sorry. You were a Republican. I'm like, well, Yes. But I'm not a Trump voting Republican. He goes, oh, well, that's good, because let me tell you this. And he starts acting as though I did vote for Donald Trump. And so he wasn't necessarily me, but he was really, for lack of a better term, condescending and just really aggressive. Um, And then Jen left. She left the conversation to go talk to somebody else. I'm like, I met this guy 45 seconds ago, and now here I am having a political, not even debate. I don't know what it is. No, you're just his whipping boy at that point. Yeah. like... And he, then, he was maybe hoping to run into a Trump I, voter and you were the closest so. he found. And, and at one point, and there was this, uh, he was, he was nice and apologetic, apologetic afterwards, which was very nice. I think he let himself get carried away. We all do. in, in moments like this, um, but there was this moment he goes, he goes, I'm sorry. He goes, I didn't mean to hit you with both barrels. And I said like, I'm a conservative living in Los Angeles. I think I got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm in, <clears throat> enrolled in school. So <laughs> it was just, uh, so it just, it, in the same way with you, we're all in this position where at any moment, political strife, internal political strife can strike and, uh, and surprise us. It's affected every movie I watch. Like we, I mean, we already talked about Arrival, but I didn't like, that was like right after the nuclear tweet. And we had yeah. so much of that is about how different world leaders respond to threats. Yeah, like that was really interesting. Diplomacy versus like military action. And like, yeah. like that spoke so much to my current fears yeah. uh, anyway that's that's solely let's move on okay uh so on the plane going to minnesota i saw uh hunt for the wilder people have you seen that have i seen it tyler i was at the world premiere of hunt for the wilder people oh okay at the sundance film festival oh, nice. back in january taika ytt sam neill and julian dennison i think is the kid's that sounds name right yeah uh we're all present yeah I think I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like this at all. Uh, Yeah, um, I really, really liked it. Um, Yeah, at times I loved it, Um, 
but I, I think that kid is great. Um, and I think his, his relationship to, um, the Sam Neill's wife, uh, the name, I don't remember the name of the character. Um, yeah. but I, I think they really have some nice chemistry and it's, it's funny in the way that, uh, New Zealanders can be funny, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, but I, it, it has line is you're like Sarah Connor in the first film when she can't do chin-ups. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's, there's an absurdity to it, but there's a, definitely a, a, a lot of heart to it. Um, it reminded me tonally, certainly not visually, but it reminded me tonally of like a Wes Anderson film, um, mixed maybe with a little bit of Spike Jones, uh, to a certain degree, uh, which, and, but I don't want to diminish, uh, the director simply because he reminds me of other things. Like it's a unique vision mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it's fun to see Sam Neill in this type of role. And I think he does a really good job with it. And, uh, yeah, there's just, it's a very droll film in a lot of ways. And um, I just, I really liked it a lot. I was, I, I didn't think of Wes Anderson. I thought of more like, this is a, a uh, higher quality version of like an eighties boys adventure movie, like the Goonies. Sure. Like we talked about with 20th century women movies that I think middle schoolers should see mm-hmm. for whatever, because it'd be edifying or whatever, but I'll bet like 11 or 12 year old boys and probably a lot of girls. Uh, I hope, uh, even though I think it's rated R, I hope they get a chance to see hunt for the wilder people because that's, that would have been maybe my favorite movie if I saw it when I was 11 years old. Well, and you know, here's, I, I'm going to step lightly when I say this, cause this, this might sound kind of shitty, but you know, the main kid is an overweight kid. Uh, they make jokes about it in the, in the film. Uh, and honestly, in most movies now, admittedly, he's the only kid there. Uh, but in most movies, your lead is not going to look like him. Right, uh, yeah. He will be like the best friend who is, you know, he's f- chunk, uh, right, from yeah. the Goonies. So to, to have your lead kid be an overweight kid and also be troubled in a lot of ways, it, it's, it, it's what it communicates that like maybe this kid uh, eats to sort of escape from things. Who's to say, and I don't mean to say that in a negative way. I don't mean to diminish the actor, uh, or anything like that, but it's, it's such an interesting choice to cast him and allow and not. And when, when characters make jokes about his weight, a, it tends to be affectionate, but B there's, you find yourself rather than being like, ha yeah, make fun of the little fat kid. Mm-hmm. Instead of that, you're just like, Oh, come yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I remember thinking that was a really interesting choice and one I liked a lot. Cause I was, I don't, I, I was not quite as big as he was, but I was an overweight kid and I was very aware that whether I was watching mighty ducks or goonies or whatever, that the fat kid was always the supporting character that needed to be humiliated one way or another. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, I, I agree. I think this is a, a movie that, that kids should see, boy, we got to do this episode in like three months when we actually have a, free, yeah, we're, we're a booked free space. Up. Um, all right. Uh, my next movie. Now there's been some controversy as to whether or not this even is a movie. I saw Ezra Edelman's OJ made in America. All right. Yes. Was, this has been uh, deeply frustrating for me. It's, it was produced by ESPN films for the purpose of being shown in five parts as a miniseries on ESPN, but it premiered at the Sundance film festival and played multiple festivals as a movie, as a nearly eight hour long movie 
and even got a nominal theatrical release, I think just to, for yeah. awards qualifying purposes. Um, to me, I don't get that hung up on if people are, if it's being pushed as a movie, fine. I'm going to talk about it yeah. as a movie. It, it has, you know, it's not uh, it, unlike a lot of TV shows. It doesn't, it doesn't switch off directing duties. There's one director for yeah. the entire time. So there isn't from an autorist point of view, uh, it qualifies. Um, I'm curious as to why it's, uh, frustrating for you because, because of how it was, first off, you don't run across a lot of eight hour movies. It was made to be a TV show. Most people will watch it in that way. Yeah. Um, and yet I keep seeing it on all these top lists and I just think like, I'm sure it's marvelous. A friend of the show, Jason Eakin saw it, said it was amazing. And it, I, I've it heard is. it's great all it around. Amazing. Um, but it's one of those things where it's just like, it, it, to me, it's almost like your thing with years where it's just like, this was, it was pushed in this, in this way, but it was never intended yeah, but I think you're, by the, the director. The, to the reason you're seeing it on critics list is because it was, shown to critics as a movie in fact right. if i because i'm a you know uh day job having film critic i couldn't yeah. have made it to any of these but i get invited to multiple press screenings yeah. to go sit in the theater all day um and and watch this with two uh, two intermissions i um, do kind of love the idea of spending eight hours engaging with this titanic cultural figure yeah um, uh, anyway it, yeah and it is a fantastic movie it is worth it is worth every bit of the time because when we think of oj especially i think people our age when yeah. we think of oj we think of the trial the murder in the trial yeah. first we think of it's, naked gun <laughs> we and, maybe think yeah. of naked gun i think people even a little bit younger than us probably probably not uh, probably don't um but yeah i first knew oj from naked gun and then yeah. very shortly after that i knew him uh as an alleged uh murderer uh double homicider um so that's that's what his legacy is tied to that murder mm -hmm. it's more than three hours into the movie before we get to yeah the murder um and that's that's fascinating because it allows you to to a you know when I, you still haven't you haven't watched the fx the miniseries right no the, i haven't i've heard great things about that uh but there's stuff in like the first episode where it's like um the people talking about like how can you expect these cops to act normal around mm -hmm. oj simpson and to me yeah. i'm like well at this point he was like what the third fiddle in the naked gun movies. <laughs> right. Like it really puts you in the mindset of like, Oh no, this guy was a huge star. And if yeah. it weren't for, uh, not just a huge star, but a hugely talented football player. Like if it weren't for this murder thing, we would still be talking about OJ as one of the great running backs of all time. Yeah. Like he is pretty much out of the conversation now because, uh, he's, uh, uh, not that I'm mourning yeah, that because of um, the unpleasantness. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other thing it allows him to allows Ezra Edelman to do is to, to set the stage with other stuff. Like he devotes like a full 30 minutes to Rodney King in that trial and the riot of April yeah. 1992, which in a literal sense doesn't have anything to do with OJ, but is so important yeah. to setting the stage of Los Angeles. I, I loved watching it as an Angelino now yeah. as well. It's a movie that's just as much about Los Angeles in many ways as it is, uh, as it is about OJ Simpson. Um, uh, and it's, it, it's, it's fantastic. And, all, it, the, and it has the effect of putting you in the mind of there's a, there's a guy, I almost said a character, a real guy who's interviewed, who was a, uh, an LA cop and he met OJ after he was retired and was friends with OJ even after he retired as a cop um, and was good friends with OJ 
and to the point where he was like at his house with him after Nicole had been, mm-hmm. been murdered when there was all the frenzy before the Bronco chase. But in that period of time, the, the, the couple days he started to think like, this is a person who's like a close friend of his. He started to think like, I think my friend might've murdered someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he removes himself from the social group, but he says, I'm not going to testify until he's called in, uh, for questioning, um, um, not as a suspect, but just like the, the prosecutors want to talk to him. Uh, and he says, he's not going to testify, but then he sees the crime scene photos. Yeah. And that, I don't know if it's because I'm not a ghoulish person. I don't track this down or if these are photos that aren't widely released, but we see like, we're so not on his side, but we're so, we're, we're so understanding why OJ was a star that even the early days of the trial, we're maybe kind of in this former cop's point of view. It's like, Ooh, we better distance himself now, but maybe we're not out to get this guy. Right. And then pretty far into the movie, like, because the, like I said, it's almost three hours before the trial or before the murder starts. Yeah. And then the next three hours of the movie are about the murder and the trial yeah. and the investigation at the, uh, near the end of that three hour chunk is when he shows us these photos that I'd never seen before. And are like, I put my hand over my mouth, like watching it uh, alone in my living room. They're horrifying. Like this was a more brutal murder than I ever really realized. Yeah. And then suddenly I felt like I wanted blood (laughs) myself. Um, and then the movie goes on another, uh, more than 90 minutes after the trial. Um, and if there's any, if I have any thing that would be a drawback from the movie, it's just based on its largely chronological structure. It jumps on a little bit, but it's mostly pretty straightforward chronologically. The OJ's life after the trial is so, I mean, I don't want to, I don't know why I said I don't want to judge judge him. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so. Okay, there's so much about what he became that is ridiculous. Yeah, that the movie goes from being an opera to being kind of like a dark comedy at the end. Mm-hmm. It is it is a little weird. Like that's not what Ezra Edelman's going for, but it's like some of the things you see about the way that OJ, this guy who was like a hugely successful. I mean, so much of it about race, obviously, a hugely successful black man, but who was spent most of his time in white society and had mostly white friends yeah. and wasn't th- and generally wasn't thought of by white America as a quote unquote black. Man. Right. You know what I mean? Um, um, the movie draws comparisons to Bill Cosby, um, and where he, where he previously was when in his level of fame. Um, and then, uh, post the verdict because black America was, you know, the, they were on his side. Yeah. He ended up becoming kind of a, stereotype of uh like of things that i would it's not my place to be insulted by them because i'm not a, a a black american or a black anything <laughs> um uh you keep at it <laughs> uh but it does become like a kind of parody almost the, yeah. the way that he starts to behave himself and so it, there's a it's weirdly tragic but it's the kind of tragedy where you don't feel as bad for the person yeah. but it also kind of like it changes the tone of the film overall. Um, and I think it's the right choice because he, you wanted Ezra Elman needs to be true to the story he's telling. Yeah. Um, but it is a bizarre, like last 90 minutes of the movie. You know, there was this, uh, back when Dennis Miller had his, you know, had his show in the nineties. Um, he did a, a, one of his, his rants, uh, 
at um, after the OJ verdict. Mm-hmm. And one thing he had said is, he says, you know, you sense anger in a lot of people that this seems very obvious and it was particularly brutal. And he said, and then for him to just get off because of some very fancy footwork on the part of his lawyers uh, and because he can afford to pay them, he said it can be very frustrating. And he said, but it's not as though he can ever go back to the life he lived. Like he is now, if you just look at how long this trial went on for and all the different elements, it's just like, think of how much OJ Simpson is a punchline now. He said, you are, it's like, you, you're never, he said, if you, if you did this and you got off, you know, you, you can't, you're never going to go back to being the OJ Simpson. We all knew you're going to be this new OJ Simpson who is perpetually the butt of a joke. Uh, you know, and yes, that probably beats being in jail, but yeah. you're, you know, but at the same time, cause again, this is because the runtime is so long, it allows so many different things to fit in. You also see how, like you, like even me as a white person who doesn't understand necessarily, I come to understand why so many people wanted him to be innocent and believed he was innocent right. because he became a symbol of um, the LAPD in particular and institu- institutionalized racism by law enforcement across yeah. the country over over decades and going back centuries, really. Um, and you 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 do understand. Uh, you, you, you like you start to see why. It was a victory, but the, or I was seen like it was going to be a victory. But then there's also a tragedy to, like when it's over, you realize O.J. Simpson's status, like he never was a symbol for Black America. And this victory, right. it was a victory for a rich guy, and things didn't get any better yeah. for poor Black people. Yeah, it's uh, that because of it. It's that wonderful Chris Rock <laughs> bit where he said, "It's not about race; it's about fame." If he wasn't, if he was just a bus driver. He wouldn't have gotten off. In fact, he wouldn't even be OJ. He'd be Orenthal, the bus driving murderer. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's a that's a, a great one. Uh, there was one other thing that I was going to say about the movie, and now I can't remember what it was. Um, I was on the tip of my tongue. Did you watch the FX show? Uh, yeah, I did. Okay, it's it's great. Um, yeah, I got I need to see both of these. But let me ask you this. Um, I'm sorry, you've got something to say. God, it's, I, I had something that had to do with that like different perspective. Um, then I, you know, and I can't remember what it is, but even, you know, you know, um, OJ's in prison now, um, for a very long time. And you even start to get like, to feel weird about that. Like, yeah, I don't know. There, there's, there's so much, anyway, there's something I was going to say now I'm forgetting what it was. Well, let me ask you this. And I know I'm sure a number of other people have already hypothesized, um, why now for both this documentary and this miniseries? Oh, I was going to say. Okay, well, you you say that and then well, answer no, my it's question. Kind of, it's kind of part of it. Okay. Uh, or I don't know, it's not necessarily part of it, but I'm wondering if it just takes this long. It takes 20 years to process. Like sure. the South Park joke about it takes 21 years for a tragedy to become funny. And that's what you can make. <laughs> Do you remember that? South Park? I didn't remember that. Where they could make... Uh, AIDS jokes in like 2001 because it had been 21 years or whatever. And it was like, m- maybe it takes us this long to gain perspective. Yeah. Uh, you know, <clears throat> and maybe it does take the sort of, uh, I mean, it's been since 2008 that he was sentenced and sent, sent to prison prison in Lovelock, Lovelock, Nevada, which I realized that I just drove through when I was driving. Mm-hmm. I drove to Boise, uh, Idaho. I wish I'd known I drove past. Uh, uh, I, I remember the prison, too. I, I wish I'd known that uh, O.J. was in there. I might have stopped in and said hello. Um, 
That's yeah. the only juice. Uh, I had a friend who tried to go see John Gotti, by the way, because oh yeah, Springfield. he was in Springfield. Yeah, yeah. Where we, yeah, he he was not allowed in. He like put on a suit and was like, "I'm here to see John Gotti," and I think he was probably left out of the building. Um, but maybe it takes a long because I was thinking, I remember thinking like is it going to be 20 years before we get the miniseries slash documentary about the 2016 election and that what it actually encapsulated about America at the time and like actually get some perspective on it. Um, it's, it's tough. Cause I mean, people are, it, it was such a shock that I think people were just kind of just groping for any kind of perspective, even in the moment, like certain, <laughs> certainly people in the media uh, who are making such, as as so many other people were just like such solid predictions of like this is going to be a landslide victory uh for hillary clinton mm-hmm. uh both popular vote and electoral college um and so you had it was so interesting like the for the first two weeks you had so many articles uh from you know new york times and just and from cnn and stuff uh, people saying like how did we get this so wrong are we living in a bubble and so and then that quickly turned into no it's fake news not our problem not our <laughs> fault we are doing everything right it's all this it's, it's this fake news over here um which seemed like uh even though that might be even though that might be a legitimate problem it does it definitely, definitely seem is. like it seemed it, like something they latched onto pretty quick um I'm sure that that makes sense. Um, but the thing I, uh, that reminds me of what I was going to say about the, and fake news kind of, um, uh, plays into this. Um, there is a part of the OJ documentary that really highlights something that I've been thinking about a lot since the election, which is how much power uneducated people have when they are together. Yeah. Um, because they talk about, it and I never, this never occurred to me when they were finding the jury pool. Oh, they needed people who were available for six months. It ended up being over eight months, yeah. but six months is what they were looking for. Um, and it was, it was a lot of people without jobs and lower economic class, which means lower education, yeah. um, generally. And something that is that that is clear um, that has been clear both in the election and in this documentary is that the danger, I guess, of people being uneducated is not just that they're uneducated, but yeah. that uneducated people have a tendency to distrust educated people. Sure, and so the prosecution's case of like scientific facts and DNA it was completely not received by these people at all because they don't, they don't have a trust of of science. I like this idea. It's like, now we've got all this DNA and they're like, easy there Poindexter. (laughs) Uh, But it kind of like that, that, you know, the appeals again, like with the 2016 election, the appeals to identity politics and emotion and narrative, whether real or, conjured up yeah. had much more weight than the facts. Yeah. It's, uh, I could see it being like, yeah, you see, you say DNA. I say air airport 77. Thank you very much. I don't know if he was in that one. <laughs> I don't know if he was either. He was I, in Capricorn he, one. Okay. And you know what? I don't know if he was in the airports. I think he was in Ca- uh, towering Inferno. That's what That's, I think. Yes. Of. He was in towering Inferno. He was uh, in, but uh, Capricorn one directed by Peter Hyams. Uh, okay. you know him, of course he made time cop. Um, and Peter Hyams is one of the, talking heads one of the people oh, really? interviewed because he became he was for after he talked about how he didn't want oj in capricorn one the studio pushed him on him because he was like a big star and then he ended up becoming like 20 year friends oh, with oj great. simpson um uh, and uh, yeah the, uh he's one of the one of the talking heads it's very interesting and oj simpson must be something of a charmer oh my god that's that, that definitely comes across really oh wow yeah. okay uh, uh yeah definitely see it um, we should uh, we should definitely move on. Definitely. 
Uh, yeah, well, I've said we've said definitely four times in the last uh, thirty seconds. Um, I'm trying, well, I'm we are talking to, about arrival. So, what's next for okay. you? Um, I was trying to evoke Rain Man, but I didn't do the voice. <laughs> um, okay, I rewatched Rogue One with the oh, uh, with the fam. Yeah, and uh, sorry, the fam in laws. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're fam. Yes. <laughs> Did you guys go to Olive Garden? Because, you know, when you're in Olive Garden, everyone's hashtag fam. <laughs> is, is that? <laughs> no, that would be great. Oh, okay. That would be a great new. Uh, 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 and, it would, and it would show that Olive Garden is, is relevant to people's lives. Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, in watching it again, there are things that I like more and things that I like less. Um, well, now, no, I don't want to watch it again because I don't want to like it any less. Okay. I loved it so much. The you know my pr- one of my big problems was the use of CGI for Grand Moff Tarkin and and for Princess Leia. When you know that that's there, it becomes less of an issue. Um, it was never an issue for me to begin with. But that's well, good for you. You're a better person than I am. I'm talking. <laughs> anyway, so well, no, um, can I say something about? Yeah, go ahead. Because I've heard a lot of people, even more since the last time we talked two weeks ago, about the CGI, and I think it's it has to do with a mindset. I'm not saying one's right or wrong, mm-hmm. but I think people who approach the CGI of a human as if it is trying to trick you into thinking you're seeing a real human, mm-hmm. those people are going to be disappointed. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Whereas if you th- see it as just another sort of design element of the movie, and maybe this helps that I'm someone who doesn't give as much respect to actors, which I've always said is a problem for me, yeah. but maybe that problem in general is why I'm less bi- bothered by the CGI because I tend to think of actors, not in a total like Hitchcock, like their cattle yeah. sense, but I tend to think of actors as another part of the director's toolbox sure. to begin with. So maybe that's why I'm less bothered by it. Anyway, sorry, go on. Here's something that I thought, because honestly, in watching it, it's like, and, I, and I'll say this, uh, one of the uh, in-laws did not know that uh, he was watching CG when he was seeing Peter Cushing on the screen. Really? Yeah. Um, and so I found that interesting. But here's what actually kind of got me. Is did he forget his glasses? <laughs> no, it's just, it's you know, he doesn't know movies. He doesn't right. know Peter Cushing. He doesn't, he doesn't remember Peter Cushing from the original film. And so uh, he didn't know the minute we even get a whiff of grand Moff Tarkin. If you're a movie fan, you just think, Oh, they're doing something grand, you know, interesting. Peter Cushing died in the early Uh nineties. But yeah. And so, uh, so you're, I'm immediately heightened to look for something that might be potentially wrong. Not that I'm looking for something to be wrong, but uh, if you're not looking for it, then I, I guess, why would you ever think that they would recreate this guy? You don't even know that there's anybody recreate recreate. Um, but, uh, what I'll say is that, um, so the CGI did not look as bad. And now that I knew that it was there, I could pay more attention to what those scenes contained, Mm -hmm. uh, from a story standpoint, from a character standpoint. But I also think that, on a, in a larger way, their decision to include Grand Moff Tarkin means that, but not have access to the actor that crafted the character, means that they have to they have to evoke the character rather than actually have him there. You know what I mean? Okay. He needs to. This is very, I don't know, very uh, strange what I'm saying, and it's uh, I don't know if it totally works, but. 
they are playing the essence of Grand Moff Tarkin because they don't have the actor that crafted him. The actor that crafted him can bring uh, nuance and specificity. Oh, I see. They have to try to emulate his performance, and it and you can't. It's not a situation where you have Ewan McGregor, you know, bringing himself into mm. this. They are trying to mimic the exact same performance as Peter Cushing, which and so that's going to immediately be different. Uh, than the nature of the character. And so, for example, if you look at choices that they make with his eyes, uh, he has, in this, his eyes are very glaring, mm-hmm. you know, and he, and the, he looks very, very sinister indeed. Um, because that's an element of Grand Moff Targon. It's like, oh, he's very ambitious and he's the, he's, he's this evil guy. Peter Cushing did not play him that way. They're, they're trying, hmm. he played him as very patrician and very removed from any emotional elements, you know, uh, he just didn't care. Not the, not the actor, the character did not care about what he was doing. He's mm-hmm. just, he, he is the essence of power. You know, he seemed like a Roman emperor or something like that. Um, whereas in this, because we know that grand Moff Tarkin is an evil guy and that he's going to be running the death star and he's going to blow up a planet with it because we know that, uh, that's how they play him. Whereas my guess is if they, if, if Peter Cushing were still around and they brought him back to play it, he wouldn't play him this way. Yeah. So that's the thing who the character is in our, in the collective, well, conscious, I guess in that, in this case, um, who that character is, dictated this performance and I don't think it's a performance the actor ever would have given. Um, so that's actually a that's thing really that, interesting. I want to rewatch a new hope. Yeah. I, I really, it's, I, I appreciate his performance a lot more once I've, when, when I've watched it as a grown up. Did you, uh, I can't remember who said this on Twitter. Apparently grandma Tarkin is on star Wars rebels or has been. Oh, okay. So someone said from Star Wars Rebels to Rogue One to A New Hope, Star Wars is a story of Grand Moff Moff Tarkin becoming a real boy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's kind of awesome. Um, But yeah, uh, I will say this. So that's actually something I liked the CGI more, or at least it wasn't as distracting, although it got me thinking about this other stuff as well. Um, in watching it, I found myself thinking, you remember uh, when you and I talked about the Avengers and when you rewatch the Avengers, you kind of, the first 20 to 25 minutes when they're gathering up the Avengers is not as interesting. Yeah. That's definitely a vibe I got from this the second time around. Really? Once we're being reintroduced to these characters, <clears throat> I just want to see them all together. Um, it's just like, okay, yeah, yeah all right. There's, that. yeah, there's Jin. Okay. There's, you know, these other characters, but once they're all together, I'm actually on board. And that third act is still, Great. I, I still love it. It's probably the best on-screen battle since the Avengers, and it might even be better. That's a that's a tall order. I don't know. <laughs> you think the attack on New York is still is better than the attack on uh, the Maldives or whatever? I can't remember what the planet's supposed to be called, but I think that's where they shot it. Maldives, Maldives. I don't know how you say it. Uh, I think I think the the I think it is better partially because we have a stronger sense of the characters and each character in the Avengers fights a different way, okay. which me and that dictates how the action is going to be shown. And I like that and okay. the way that they work together um, and that the camera will often follow one character and then swoop on to show another character. I just thought there was more vir- virtuoso quality to that 
filmmaking, but it's a different type of action as well. This is more full on war action, whereas yeah. that is definitely superhero action. Um, sorry, we can move on. All right, let's move on. Um, I saw, speaking of action, um, I saw a movie that I had heard nothing but bad things about and was, um, kind of a part of me was holding on to some hope anyway, but, uh, nope. Uh, I finally saw Paul Greengrass's Jason Bourne. Oh, okay. Did you see it? No, it's a bummer. Yeah. And I'm trying to think like, it's two things that have happened. Uh, or three things. One, it's just not a very good script. Uh, it, Who wrote it? Um, I don't remember. Not Tony Gilroy. All right. Um, but also, I think the thing that happened that's happened is that what was fresh about the Bourne movies is no longer fresh. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And also, Paul Greengrass and company forgot, actually, what a Bourne movie is supposed to be. Hmm. So there's a part that I'm... Myself with my wife and, and, and like afterwards I was like, Oh, that was awful. She was like, you seem to be enjoying the chasing at the end. And I was like, no, I think I was laughing at the movie. Oh wow. Because there's like the whole thing that was so interesting about Jason Bourne to the point that I, from what I understand it, uh, reshaped the bond franchise. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of people say. I haven't seen any of those. Uh, that's about right. Um, but the whole thing that was so cool about it was that it was leaner and scrappier and more focused, yeah. you know, there's a real immediacy to it. And, and, but now, and also Jason Bourne, um, surprisingly rarely uses a gun. Like most of his combat is, mm. is hand to hand or sometimes pen or rolled up magazine yeah. or whatever to, you know, to hand like that's part of the fun is his, uh, innovation, but everything's up close cut to now. What is it? 14 years after the first movie, you've got Vincent Cassell driving an armored SWAT truck down Las Vegas Boulevard, literally tossing cars from side to side. Like it essentially, the movie essentially becomes bad boys too. Yeah. It's the exact opposite. And there's a part of me that, and that's by the way, that's not even the dumbest thing, Like okay. talks in the, there's a part. So driving down Las Vegas Boulevard, he turns right onto, uh, I think Flamingo, maybe I'm not sure. Um, uh, Vincent Cassell turns right and Matt Damon is in, you know, follow, is chasing him in another car. He turns right, but not on the street. He turns up, up the ramp to the Bally's entrance. If you know that intersection in Las Vegas, I'm not sure everybody, uh, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of people don't, uh, but he goes up the ramp to Bally's and then he jumps the car off the ramp to Bally's and lands the car on top of the armored SWAT truck as it's driving down Flamingo or whatever that road is. That doesn't uh, seem like a Jason Bourne. No. Movie. And then in the, and they, and then they, it drives into a casino. It drives a, a SWAT car into a casino. Yeah. That's more blues brothers than, uh, <laughs> than Jason Bourne. Uh, oh, well. somebody, you know what? Somebody needs to, uh, take that scene and put that music yeah. over it while yeah. they're driving in the mall. Yeah. Um, it was just, it's just a, a bummer. Um, I wouldn't need to spend much time on it. There is one other thing I want to say about movies in general that I've noticed. And I'm at a breaking point with this. Okay. I've noticed it for my entire life. Um, why does every action or thriller movie or whatever have some scene where the female character is referred to as the girl, you know what I'm talking about? Like get the girl or, you know, like okay. that it's constant. And there's a part in this movie where the bad guy is radioing to mm. his sniper, Vince Cassell, um, who Vince Cassell is a character who's only ever referred to as the asset, which I actually do think is kind of cool. And yeah. I were an actor, I would kind of love to play an actor, play a character <laughs> whose only name is the asset. So this character is radioing to the asset cause he's supposed to 
he's a sniper somebody uh and he said and he, he decides in that moment he also wants because he finds out that alicia vikander has betrayed him so he mm-hmm. says he you know and she's up on the stage too so he wants both of them killed and he's like so he's like shoot you know mr whatever mr clore is the character's name shoot clore and the girl and my thought is like everyone on this channel knows what her name is yeah <laughs> like it's weird to call her the girl at that point this is someone that you work with you know like yeah. there's it, there's no confusion there. Yeah. like I, I don't understand it just seems like it's become like a, it's a screenwriter cliche that shows up in all of these kind of movies there's one movie that does that that i kind of love it in and that's obviously spartan where they say it all the time where's the girl right um and that's and i think what i like about that is because in that instance it is almost a code word um they have an actual yeah. code word for her but it's almost like we don't have time to say her full name. We all know who we're talking about, the girl. And I don't right. know. And I think that, yeah, and I think it works in that movie too because there's this sense of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, it's shrouded, covert. Sure. Uh, I can't remember. Sure. There's a specific word I'm looking for um, uh, where they don't want to say, get the, you know, the president's daughter. Yeah, yeah. Or even referred to her by her name because yeah. you never know who's listening. Yeah, I think that's good. Um I can't remember what the, there's a word I'm th- searching yeah. for here. All right. This is all I've been putting this off until second to last. I have another movie to talk I'm, about. I'm, yeah. I'm pre- if, if Twitter is any indication, <sighs> I think I know what you're about to talk about. So just last night I saw Morton Tildum's Tildum. I hardly even know him. Morton Tildum's, uh, well, I gotta go <laughs> <laughs> passengers. And this movie is so dumb. Well, it's, so, like Patriot's Day, Patriot's Day, Patriot's Day. <laughs> That's what it should uh, be called. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like Patriot's Day, it is a movie that is um, morally questionable. Okay. Even more so, actually, than Patriot's Day. Um, but it also is just incredibly dumb. It's so dumb. Uh, but I also, this is like with, I was saying with Arrival or with The Monster Calls, like, because I don't watch trailers, I don't know what is the spoiler and what isn't? Cause I watched the trailer today and I was like, Oh, there are things I knew about passengers that they're not advertising. Um, yeah, so I'm that, not sure what I can say. It has gotten a lot of negative reviews and almost every review I've read does spoil this thing because it was marketed one way and it is a very different thing <laughs> yeah, from I'm a story not, standpoint. I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not morally opposed to, uh, movies being misadvertised, I think, right? Because I also I'm I tend to be dismissive of advertising to begin with. Right. So, like, you know, just like when you stand in the rain, you can only, you only get so wet. Like, yeah, you can only you know it's already a lie to begin with. Who yeah. cares? Um, but I that does leave me in a place where I don't entirely know what to say about the story. No. But I think. Um, Do you want to just say spoilers and then, uh, you know, no, cause, no, cause I did the movie's just out. Okay. You know, um, or I guess it's been out a week now. Um, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it'll be a week. Yeah. I don't want to say spoilers, but I, I, I do want to say that Chris Pratt's character makes a, uh, decision that is, um, m- morally, I, I mean, I, I want to soft pedal it and say dubious, but it is uh, a nearly unforgivable moral decision that he makes. I was going to ask if it were irredeemable because I do know well, the decision. I don't think anything, this is just my personal worldview, worldview. I don't think anything is irredeemable. Right. But I think the way the movie handles it, it now the build up to it, it does seem that the movie seems to understand. Yeah. But then 
the quickness with which it deals with it, with which not only the, does the other character, Jennifer Lawrence's character, forgive him, but the movie itself seems to forgive him and seems to take his forgiveness as a matter of course. Yeah. That's where I start to get offended by it. And especially in like the movie, just in our current, our current climate, you know, with social justice and, and, and things like this, um, there are so many red flags in his behavior. You know, we talk about like in random comedies, like if, if male characters acted in real life, like they do in random comedies, they'd be stalkers. We said as a joke, but this one isn't even a comedy. Like his behavior is downright creepy. Like he is, he essentially like decides that he's in love with this woman that he's never met. Yeah. Cyber stalks her in a way. Uh, you know, it's, it's so many like correlations yeah. to things that actually happen. He essentially cyber stalks her. Uh, and then the movie, because it plays like a male fantasy, she plays into it. And yeah. like, uh, every, it's, it, it just seems like there's a, there's a point maybe early in the second act where I think my mind and probably most viewers minds are going to go one way and the movie seems to go another without even questioning it. Hmm. And it's just from that point on. And then the movie gets stupid too, like, because it just becomes about this MacGuffin, uh, Hmm. you know, where it's like they have to save the, whatever it's, it it also kind of abandons what it's about. Uh, that, that's why I say it's a stupid movie in addition to being, uh, queasy and morally offensive. Um, and wouldn't it be so interesting? Obviously it wouldn't be released around this time of year, like when families were going to go see it, but the idea, uh, cause I, yes, cause I do know what the decision is that he makes. And wouldn't it be interesting if, if the next like 30 minutes are all about the fallout of, of that decision or no, sorry. Once, once another character finds out yeah. what his decision was, if a good portion of the rest of the film is all about that and there's not an immediate forgiveness. Yeah. And then the movie, it's not immediate. It does seem to like, it does seem to give some time to her being incredibly upset, but then, then because it introduces this plot device, MacGuffin type yeah. thing, suddenly that's a catalyst for everyone's like, yeah. everyone's forgiven and everyone's working together. And like, again, I don't want to spoil it, but beyond forgiven, like, I think there's a way to make this movie. I think there are two, uh, you know, it would do, it'd be very, very interesting to see a similar story to this with the genders reversed. I think you could turn it into, uh, a, a commentary on a lot of things if you did no. that, but there's also a way to make this movie, in which it's a much darker movie, not yeah. like a, a, a kind of programming award season blockbuster, which is what this is trying to be. Um, but there is a way to keep these characters who they are and actually deal with the fallout. Yeah. But because it um, insists on becoming a really uh, formulaic sort yeah. of action disaster movie uh, in its in its third act, it completely it attempts to completely skirt any responsibility to the characters and the actions that it's set up. Uh, and it doesn't work. And the whole thing is just a, a failure. Yeah. If they were willing to let this be Solaris and not an action movie and really delve with the consequences, philosophical and practical, then I feel like this could be amazing. Yeah. It could be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you've got one more. I I have one more. And then I have one more. All right. So, um, I don't know when this episode is going to go up, but uh, 
<laughs> tomorrow I'll be recording a number of more than one lesson episodes and banking them. Uh, and one of the episodes is going to be about the place beyond the pines, which I, Ooh, well, I love that movie with the companion film Lone Star. Uh, I haven't seen that in a long which time. Is, I love that movie too. Which, uh, you may recall when we did our, uh, if you like that, you'll love this or whatever we called it. Um, and I said, if you like place beyond the pines, you should see Lone Star. Uh, so I rewatched place beyond the pines. Uh, and I went back and listened to our top 10 of 2013 to hear us talk about it. And now had I seen it at that point? I think you had. Oh, yes. I had. Okay. Um, cause it wasn't on my list. Right. Cause I think, you, cause you considered it a 2012. Oh, that's me. So, that's um, a, what a, what a douche. I know. Uh, <laughs> so here's what I'll say is, uh, I've recently been inspired to put off all the things I need to do. And, uh, <laughs> last night I went through every decade <laughs> and said, these are the 10 best movies of that decade. Uh, which is wow. uh, an episode series. I think we could do one uh, at some point, which would be yeah, a lot of your, fun. Your list. That would be great <laughs> with my commentary. Oh, I don't, no, I want, I want yours. Cause I, we have such different, i but I don't feel comfortable going back to past decades because I'm, I have compulsive tendencies. And since 2002, I've written down every movie I've seen, but right. if I were to go back to the nineties, the, fear that I might forget a single movie Here's is what you enough do. to keep me from doing the list at all. Here's what you do. Again, I'm a little compulsive. You go to, you go to Wikipedia, you type in 1995 in film. It will list every movie that got any kind of release in theaters okay. and in often and often on video. Okay. So we'll do this episode in five years when I have time to do that. Yeah. It's, and also this was helpful. This was easier for me to do because a while ago I went through doing that on Letterboxd and put down like my top 10 movies of every year. Anyway. So, uh, because I had recently rewatched inside Loon Davis and said that that was probably one of the best movies of the 2010s. Um, I got that sense with place beyond the pines as well. Um, this movie's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's amazing in a way that I, I feel like none of us are, are able to comprehend yet. Um, I think I had forgotten since last watching it, just how great the filmmaking is, you know, the scenes of, of bank robbery, um, are really yeah. thrilling and just the, the, the way it's, cut together the way it's shot um the performances are uh are very very specific um with and everyone's everyone turns in a really great performance and i do think bradley cooper whose character does have to change significantly over the course of the film but also there's a scene where he's you know he has just uh killed this uh, criminal who's on the run and he's sitting in a psychiatrist office and he's, he's giving answers, but he's not sure how much information to give. And it's really, and the director is just content to just stay on his face and let him, let the actor get where he needs to get. Um, and it's just choices like that. It's just a film unlike so many other movies being made now or maybe ever. Um, I'm astonished that any studio was okay with it. Um, 
I certainly know that they portrayed it one way uh, as far as these stars sharing the screen and that mostly does not happen. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah. And so uh, just as a little hint, here's my top 10 of the 2010s so far. Obviously this is limited to my own personal, what I've seen and what I haven't. And so there are probably people that are going to be very angry that I included stuff and did not include other things. Number 10, Exit through the gift shop. Oh, that's a good one. Number nine, a separation. Oh, good one. Number eight, the place beyond the pines. Okay. Number seven, the act of killing. Yeah. Number six, under the skin. I never saw it. You'd love it. Number five, her. Mm -hmm. Number four, the social network. Mm -hmm. Number three, Margaret. Good. Number two, the tree of life. Okay. And number one, Inside Lewin Davis. All right, there you go. Um, so, uh, but yeah, uh, Place Beyond the Pines, it, it's, it is almost revelatory, that film. Uh, doesn't it feel like we are due for another Bradley Cooper movie? Like, no one saw War Dogs. He was in that right. apparently. Right, yeah. The last thing I saw him in, I didn't even see him, is 10 Cloverfield Lane. Yeah. Because he's a voice on the phone in that yeah. one. He had a small part, a small but great part in Joy, Damn I would right. say he was the best part of Joy, which is a movie I didn't like overall, but he might be the best part of it well, I think her in terms of per- I performance, think, at least. I think her performance is the best part of it. I think his sequence is the best part. Yeah, and he, okay. and he, I'll, I'll agree with that. And yeah, he's yeah. great in it, obviously. Um, yeah. uh, 2015 also, and I didn't see the Wet Hot American Summer TV show, oh, yeah. uh, but he also did Burnt and Aloha, not some movies that were well. So really, American Sniper 2014 was the last like big Bradley Cooper movie. And he's the voice of... Rocket Raccoon. But wait, he hasn't, that, uh, also not since 2014. Yeah. Right? I mean, unless Rocket Raccoon showed up in Civil War, I don't, know, no. I don't think so. Uh, so that's also been since 2014. So it was before American Sniper, actually, because yeah. it was the summer. Get with it, Bradley yeah, Cooper. I, Come I on. I miss seeing Bradley Cooper. Remember you've how funny nom- he was in American Hustle? Maybe the yeah. best part of American Hustle, too. Yeah. You've been um, nominated a bunch of years in a row. What's the problem? Let's yeah. keep this going. All right. Let's move on to my final movie, and then I do have a TV show to talk about. And you know what I actually uh, do, too? I just remembered. Oh, good. Um, I'm still processing this movie, but uh, let's say that's just safe to say it's uh, it's amazing. Um, Andrea Arnold's American Honey. Oh, okay. Another very long movie. It's two hours and 45 minutes. Wow. Um, and it is a movie that it's right up my alley because it has no real plot, uh, which is my kind of movie, but it doesn't feel like two hours and 45 minutes. It feels, uh, it's a movie. It, I don't know if you know the, the premise. I don't. Um, so, uh, Sasha Lane, this newcomer plays, a 18 year old, um, girl who's, um, from a very poor background, um, who gets, hired at this job, which apparently these are real things that I have looked up and are they're pretty weird, but uh, a magazine crew or mag crew, which is a group of mostly teenagers um, who drive around the country selling magazines door to door. And they're pretty terribly taken advantage of. They only get to keep about 20% of what mm-hmm. they make. Um, and, and it's, um, it's a real thing. And it's kind of a predatory practice that hires, really poor kids um, who don't have any other options. It is. I believe I subscribed to a magazine in a situation like that. <laughs> I subscribed uh, to Time magazine. Well, um, uh, but what I like about the movie is that it's not, it illustrates all those pretty awful things that I just said, but it's not pedantic about it. Um, it's told from the point of view of this character who has found a place where she belongs. You know, Mm -hmm. she's got like this, 
she's got an abusive father. Her mom's not in the picture. She's taking care of two young kids that aren't hers or aren't her siblings. You know, they're, they're just kids who are around. Uh, and she gets this way out. Um, and it becomes enamored with, um, the sort of, uh, so the, uh, the great actors, Riley Kyo or Kyo, I'm not sure how to say her name plays like the head of the crew, but then Shia LaBeouf plays like the sort of top seller and the one who does the training of the new hmm. recruit. So she becomes kind of enamored of him and infatuated and just, hangs out with these kids and it's basically just a movie that's two hours and 45 minutes of like 18 year olds, 18 year old, like rejects misfits, quote unquote, white trash type kids getting drunk and high selling magazines, listening to hip hop, beating each other up, having sex with each other. It's, uh, uh, but it's, is this meant to evoke Oliver Twist? Cause the story you just described reminds me of that. <laughs> uh, it's, well, it's not, maybe the premise, but it's not plot driven right. in, in that way. Um, so I don't know if it is, and I don't know if that is intentional. I definitely see what you're talking about. Um, but yeah, I don't know how much that's, uh, that's intentional. Um, but it's just, it's, it's a movie that it's, it's about people of a certain economic class in a way that is not really about them. It's, mm-hmm. it's of them. It's, 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 it's experiential. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, it has the kind of, uh, and the cinematography's name, cinematographer's name is, uh, it's the guy who does, um, uh, Ken Loach stuff. He also did, I did, I did Blake this year, oh, which okay. I haven't seen yet. Um, is it Robbie Ryan? It's something like that. Anyway, um, it's the kind of cinematography that seems verite and documentary like until every once in a while you just like catches a frame that you like you realize um oh there's a lot of thought going into how this movie looks and it's and it's quite beautiful um and the performances uh you know when you've got this many non-actors or new actors giving great performances that's clearly down to the director Mm -hmm. you know um and so andrea arnold does a fantastic job with just not just sasha lane who's the star but you get the impression that most of the kids uh, most of the people in the, in the mag crew outside of Riley Keough and Shia LaBeouf are not professional actors. Yeah. Um, and that's who you're spending pretty much all your time, all your time with. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I'm still processing it. Um, so I can't say much more than what I've said. Uh, but it's a fantastically well realized movie. Um, I will warn you, Tyler. Okay that uh sean patton has a small role <laughs> not sean patton um will patton pa- will patton sean okay. patton's a stand-up comedian yeah uh, it's very funny um will patton has a small a small role is he interesting um yes he is kind of like vincent cassell in uh jason Bourne. Okay. He, his character doesn't have a name he's not referred to as anything but he's when we meet him he's in the backseat of a car and the uh, like in on imdb at least he's credited as backseat um but not in the credits can i tell you about the credits sure the end credits so it lists the main cast first but not which characters it just yeah. lists the cast and then it says this is a film by and it lists the rest of the cast and crew alphabetically by first name with no sense of who is the director or who was a grip or who did catering or it's just like here's all the people that works in the movie alphabetically by first name for some reason wow <laughs> very strange that's very strange uh what else has andrea arnold done uh well wuthering heights was the last thing i think okay and then fish tank is fish where tank. she made her name that's the one yes i did yeah. see that um all right so that's tv it for movies yeah you got a tv show yeah uh i 
started watching, I, I just wanted something on while I was working. Uh, and so the other day I was watching, uh, American dad. I don't know if you've seen American dad and I've talked about it on the show before. Very little. Um, now obviously it's connected to family guy because of, uh, Seth MacFarlane, but he actually, he started American dad when family guy was canceled, but then they brought family guy back. And so he was running both shows for a while and then he moved away from American dad and, and is now you know, has been running family guy, leaving American dad in the hands of other people. Now he still comes in and does voices, but he's not running the show. And it really, you can tell American dad is much smarter hmm. than family guy, uh, with much more of a genuine heart while also oh. with, with characters that are developed that the, that the show seems to have affection for while still not, uh, not compromising, you know, the laughs and that sort of thing. Uh, American dad is definitely, it is so much closer in tone to the Simpsons than family guy ever was. Um, and the jokes are funny. And even, even the character, uh, Roger, who is the Paul Lind type, uh, alien, um, even he, who in many ways, he's so over the top and ridiculous that my first instinct would be like, well, he's probably not that funny. Nope. Still funny. Still very funny. Um, and I just, I can't really, I can't get over how, you know, it's no Futurama or anything, but how well written the show is, how well acted it is. Um, and just how each episode is just conceived so, so well. And I'm very, I'm, uh, it's a show that when I, when I tell people that I've been watching it, I often feel like, like, well, I want, I wanted something on while I was working, as I just said, like you have to like, before they can interject it, I'm watching American, what is it called? American dad, American dad. And that was because of the, like, I I need something on while I'm working (laughs) that I can't think too hard about. But honestly, I, I lead with that. And then I talk about how good the show is. So now I can say, I'm not ashamed to be watching this show. It's a show I would watch even if I wasn't working. Uh, it is a very, very, uh, just a very well-crafted show that does not feel like a Seth MacFarlane uh, uh, production. Uh, I really uh, just very, very quickly want to mention uh, the end of Project Runway season 15. Okay. Um, I haven't talked about Project Runway that much this season uh, because I feel like people don't care that much about that show anymore. It does seem like it now has its, it has its core uh, yeah. of which I am one, uh, but it doesn't seem to have as much of a cultural impact as it did in its early days. But um, this season was terrific and it's sort of, uh, there are, there are different ways that these kind of shows can go. And I think mm-hmm. part of what made project runway and then top chef, which, um, was originally made by the same people. Magical elves is a production company who created project runway and top chef. They now still run top chef, but they don't, uh, Pina Murray now runs, uh, project runway. Anyway, that's not important, but, um, it is kind of important to say like part of their thing was like, no, we're going to show you people who are really actually good at these things. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But then there's also the part where it's a show and these are care. The contestants are characters. Right. And this season of project runway, manage this weird feat of being uh, maybe the weakest crop of designers as designers in the show's history, but still being a great season yeah. because of the characters. Um, and part of the, part of this is my personal taste. You know, I've talked about why I prefer amazing race to survivor. Right. And, and it's because survivor encourages people to, in my view, be mean to each other. And this is a crop of designers who were, 
you know, there was some drama, but they were mostly supportive of one another and interesting and funny and they got along. And I like that seeing that cooperation yeah. uh, better. Um, now that's it. They did have some really talented designers, including the one who won. Uh, and so it's always cause for celebration when the best designer actually wins project runway. I'd say it's happened maybe a third of the time, <laughs> um, uh, if not less, but um uh, I really want to mention that um, yeah, Project Runway is still going strong and this season was very good. And if people have maybe tuned out for a while, uh, you can always tune back in. It'll come back. It's a, it's a good, solid show. Oh, and also, can you think of... I'm sure there are because I don't watch many reality competition shows, but you have watched Project Runway and you like yes, it. Yes, I did. Can you think of other other shows like this? Like, you know, reality slash competition, you know, elimination type shows. Mm-hmm that have a Tim Gunn type who is neither host nor judge. He is solely mentor. No, I, it's that was when I watched project runway, I remember thinking like, wow, he's an, he's an, he plays an odd role in this. And I can't think of, I can't think of another one. Admittedly, I don't watch that many, but, uh, but I think he's, so yeah, he's the mentor, but in some ways he becomes the audience surrogate because mm. the judges really the, like, you know, Heidi sees them at the beginning and end of the challenge and the judges just see them at the yeah. end of the challenge. He's the one who develops a bond with them. Yeah. And so he, and he's the one who says goodbye when someone, you know, Heidi says how Vader's aim, but he's the one who comes and gives a hug and says, yeah. I have to send you to pack up your workstation. He represents the emotional connection to the contestants. Yeah. And it is, which is weird. Cause I don't consider him that emotional of a guy, but he is, he is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he does. And I like, I think what's interesting about, Tim Gunn is uh, sure he's a TV personality and he's a producer on the show and he understands that role, but I really do believe that he gets attached to these people every season. Oh, no question. Uh, and I think that's, it's surprising to me that more shows haven't had that and maybe they've tried and no one can out Tim Gunn, Tim Gunn. But, um, I think it really does help you, the viewer become closer to the characters because you've got him as like a surrogate. Yeah. But there aren't many shows that, that would allow that, 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 I don't know that that are conducive to that type of role. The only like the reason that he can get involved is because he's free from judgment. He doesn't have to right. play, fulfill that role. Um, he can just be there for them. Right. And he can, he's, you know, he's on their side and, I don't know. There's no way to incorporate that type of thing into Survivor or that type of thing into yeah. Amazing Race. I mean, there's no reason Top Chef couldn't do it. Though. Sure. Yeah. Anyway. So, I think something creative uh probably yeah. would would lend itself to that anyway uh okay This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 